Welcome to the Wildlife Health Talks. This is the 29th episode introducing WDA members and their amazing work all over the world. Today, I'm taking you to Southern Mississippi in the US. My guest is the marine animal vet, Dr. Deborah Moore. She's an assistant clinical professor at the Global Center for Aquatic Health and Food Security at Mississippi State University and the former head vet at the Institute for Marine Mammal Studies or IMMS in short. Her favorite patients are dolphins and she has spent many years caring for them. Let's chat all manatees, dolphins and sea turtles. Welcome to the show, Deb. Hi, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to talk today. <laughs> Deb, when did you join the WDA? I actually, I've heard about it for a long time and I've been wanting to join. And so I joined today. Yay, welcome to the WDA. That's very exciting. <laughs> yes, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to participating. <laughs> very cool. We are very lucky to have you. Let's jump right in to your work and your career. You're an assistant professor and a clinical marine animal veterinarian. Do you prefer teaching or clinical work? Honestly, I really enjoy both of them, but I think I really love working with students and teaching them, especially veterinary students, because they're able to make that connection with what they have learned traditionally in the classroom from terrestrial species and apply it to aquatic species. And when that light goes off and they say, they can see the comparisons and that it's just working with a different species, then that gives me a thrill. Oh, that's awesome. That's really cool. And tell me a bit more about what is your role at Mississippi State? Okay, so I lead the clinical training for veterinary students at Mississippi State. It was a new program that began about five years ago. So all veterinary students are trained in aquatic animal medicine. They all get an opportunity to work with cetaceans. They get an opportunity to work with sea turtles. They do some examinations of pinnipeds, which we have California sea lions. So it just, the exposure is what's very critically important. So when they get the chance to work with these animals, they are hands-on and we're the second only veterinary school in the country that offers this to all veterinary students that are enrolled in the program. That is really cool. That's awesome. Lucky MS State students, that's for sure. So Deb, we talked a bit about your passion for teaching and how much you enjoy it and what your goals are in your own teaching. Tell me a bit about your own kind of upbringing as a vet. Where did you go to vet school and what was that like for you? Yeah, I went to Tuskegee University's College of Veterinary Medicine. I'm an older graduate. I graduated in actually 1987 and it's an HBCU, which stands for a Historically Black College University. And I really feel I got an outstanding education in veterinary medicine, and I've been able to do some really wonderful things as a graduate of Tuskegee. I want to make sure that uh, we all represent Tuskegee well, and I think all graduates of Tuskegee know that and, and really strive to do that. We are a privately run veterinary school, so we don't have a lot of, we don't have traditionally public funding that you would see at a lot of other universities that are public run or state run schools. So there, any private university is, you know, they can have their financial concerns, but it's in Alabama. It's very close to Auburn University, about 30 minutes from Auburn University. And we have a very diverse 
group of graduates from Tuskegee, from international as well as nationals. <laughs> and since you enjoy teaching so much, tell me, do the oceans and ocean science or marine science have a space in vet school? Oh, I really think so. I think that we have traditionally, and I think it's true across the board, we don't understand our oceans, even though we live right here on a planet that's over 70% water. And so we all hear this all the time, that veterinarians are responsible for the health care of all the species besides humans. But when you think about it from an oceanic perspective, that is a huge opportunity. And so I love the opportunity to educate students about our oceans um, because I had no idea about our oceans when I went through veterinary school. And then I ended up going to the University of Puerto Rico to do um, marine biology and it just opened up a whole new world for me. So it's important for students to have that opportunity and, and to be educated about it because this is this is our planet. This is where we live. <laughs> That's awesome. And I assume you're a keen scuba diver? I love to scuba dive. I haven't been in a while, but I dove a lot in Puerto Rico. Nice. Yeah, that's probably better than diving in the Mississippi Sound, isn't it? <laughs> that's for sure, considering it's a pretty shallow body of water. Yeah. <laughs> and let's chat a bit about your work at IMMS, the Institute for Marine Mammal Studies in Mississippi. So your clinical work there focuses on the aquatic patients. The institute has a residence population of dolphins, of sea turtles, but also takes in animals for rehabilitation. So what are the common causes of disease you treat the rehab dolphins? The most common cause for cetaceans are primarily we see bottlenose dolphins because there's one of the largest population of bottlenose dolphins in the Mississippi Sound is right in our area. I'd say the top three are disease related to pulmonary issues. And then we had the largest die-off of dolphins in 2019 from prolonged freshwater exposure. I, I have to say, it really fascinates me having worked in this area of marine mammal health for a little bit now as well. I, I really get the feeling that although dolphins adapted to the oceans and marine life very well, but it seems like they just haven't gotten it right about their respiratory tract, right? Like being so prone to respiratory diseases is just a bit unfortunate. Yes, it's, it is. Uh, when they surface to breathe, they breathe right at that water-air interface. So anything that's really on the surface of the water, they, they uh, inhale, but also... It makes sense because of their physiology. They dive, they have to hold their breaths for prolonged periods of time. Just the histopathology of the lung tissue is different than the terrestrial animals. So when you put all of that into consideration and then they are using a huge capacity of their lung tissue for oxygen exchange at the uh, interface of the blood vasculature, it makes sense. You know, if you only have an animal that breathes two to three times per minute or less, that exchange of oxygen, they're retaining that whatever they're inhaling for long periods of time. And that's what really fascinates me about anatomy and physiology, that there's always a reason why these things happen. And we just have to understand the reason. 
I would just wonder if we give them another million years, if they would find a way to, well, evolution would find a way to maybe have a snorkel growing so that they wouldn't breathe directly from the surface interface. Anyway, yeah. something to look out from the future. Let's chat about another issue that the dolphins you see regularly have. So some of the animals that come into IMMS cannot be released back into the wild, unfortunately. And one of the common reasons for this in dolphins is the loss or at least the partial loss of hearing. First, can you tell us briefly for people who don't know, and I was really fascinated when I first learned about it, how do you assess hearing in dolphins? Well, I've had the really good fortune of being able to participate with um, Dr. Dorian Hauser, who is a physiologist, and he has really done a lot in understanding dolphin or cetacean hearing in general, especially the odontocetes. And so we do auditory evoke potential examinations, which are similar, that's ones that are done on human infants and on other animals. And so we actually do physical hearing tests where we attach suction cups and probes to the um, lower jaw and then along the head and a signal is sent to the animal and then it's picked up and it's connected to a computer. And so then it's interpreted as the signal gets louder and louder and louder if these animals are able to perceive it and hear it. We don't hear it ourselves, but they're able to hear it. And so they do that test and that test is very important for odontocetes because they echolocate in the wild. And if they don't pass the test, then it really is not very wise to release them because their survivability is much lower. So we need to make sure that dolphins can hear before they can be released. And that's one of the critical diagnostic procedures that NOAA asks us to be able to show and prove before any animal is deemed releasable back into the uh, natural environment. And lastly, that is the major goal for any rescue rehabilitation and release organization such as IMMS, because we want to get those animals back out into the wild populations as quickly as possible. And what are the hypotheses there about the potential causes of hearing loss? Would this be something that is related to the reason why they stranded in the first place, you think? Yes, yes. I, I think it's a pretty good fortune, but they've identified pretty much five reasons why uh, that affects their hearing. One is intense chronic noise. The other is transient intense noise. Some of them are age-related hearing loss. Some of them are congenital loss, and then ototoxic drugs are potentially problematic. Mm -hmm. I've had the experience of working with probably congenital loss in a, a dolphin calf that's stranded, very young in Louisiana. And this dolphin is now at IMMS and requires some really unique ways of training And I take my hats off to the trainers to be able to communicate it with an animal that has significant hearing loss. But that animal would not survive in, in, in the wild because, number one, he's stranded with a congenital problem in a very young age and will, has not been able to hear. And then we've had the experience of working with a rough-toothed dolphin that's stranded. And I think the majority of the rough-toothed dolphins that strand can't uh, probably keep up with their pod and somehow get separated out and end up stranding on the beaches. So when we rescued a dolphin named Dagny, we did an auditory evoked potential examination and found that she was deaf 
And so we transported her to another facility where there's other resident conspecifics living with her. How do deaf or partially deaf dolphins fare in human care? I, mean, I have limited experience, but from working with the two that we have here and being at the other facility where uh, we took uh, Dagny, I think they do very well as long as they, you know, adapt to their, their environment and they're able to really interact with conspecifics. They've done exceptionally well from my experience. Others may have different experiences, but I'm just speaking of myself. I guess that would teach us something about how inclusive dolphins are in their social behavior, right? If they accept conspecifics that behave a bit differently and seem a bit weird at first. Right. And, you know, we never know what's happening dynamically in between them themselves, because, you know, we can never ask those questions, but we can observe. And I think animal trainers working along with the veterinarians have really good insight. And we're able to see the social interactions and see how they respond to each other. And I think it's, I mean, from my observation, it's been quite uh, enriching to see. Let's chat briefly about the turtles, because at IMMS, you do rehab of the Kems Ridley turtles. And I was lucky enough to see them up close. And they're not just the prettiest sea turtles I've ever seen. They're also the rarest and most endangered species of sea turtles. Tell me a little bit about what are their main threats and what usually brings them to you or makes them strand. Okay, so we specifically work with Kemp's Red Sea Turtles. And as you mentioned, they are the most critically endangered. And we primarily get the juvenile stage of development for these turtles. At, in Mississippi, the majority of them are caught on hook and line. And fishing uh, anglers fishing from fishing piers will catch the turtles. And they bring them in, we have a hotline number that, or IMMS has a hotline number that they call and communicate as well as with NOAA. So we work hand in hand with NOAA to um, remove those fishing hooks. And I personally do minor surgical removals, or sometimes we have to do endoscopic removals of the hooks. And I work with the internal medicine specialist at Mississippi State University, Dr. John Thomason, who helps with the endoscopic removal of hook turtles that are embedded in the mucosa of, of their gastric tissue. So um, that's what we see here. We also see entanglements, you know, people leaving their fishing gear out in our oceans or in the Mississippi Sound, crab pots or fishing line or fishing nets um, that end up, ends up killing the turtles. So we've seen a whole host of that. And then lastly, dredge accidents can happen. They get caught up in these dredges when The channels are being dredged out for ships to pass through and our boat strikes sometimes can happen. So with uh, propeller wounds. So we see all of those combinations. Before your work at IMMS, you treated manatees in Puerto Rico. What is it that fascinates you about manatees? I love manatees because they are huge to work with from my perspective you know an animal that survived that long that has the life history of of this species and they're herbivorous so they're grazing on seagrass and they grow to these large slices so i really loved working with manatees and just interacting with them and not having any incisors in the front of their mouth uh, their dentation is similar to elephants they're just really fascinating species to work with 
I really wasn't aware before preparing for this interview with you that there are actually manatees in Puerto Rico. Sometimes you might get the impression that Florida has a bit of a monopoly on the species. So what's the conservation status of the Puerto Rican manatee population? They are, well, first of all, I started working with manatees in Puerto Rico in the early 1990s. I was the veterinarian for the Caribbean's training at work. And I think they did a fantastic job of exposing the Puerto Rican people to manatees because before them, people really were not that conscientious about maintaining their lives. They, they were still even hunted sometimes for meat. And so, or boat strikes, or just, you know, there, there was just not a level of consciousness that needed to happen. And so the first manatee that I was exposed to was named Moises the manatee, and I was his veterinarian. And just exposing people to Moises and having them engage. And his mother had died and he was found nursing on a pinball machine knob. Oh. And so having that opportunity to work with that animal and bottle feed him and develop uh, formulas with him. And then we worked along in tandem with SeaWorld of Florida. So the whole population of Puerto Rican people embraced this animal's upbringing. And it, I think it changed the culture. So we had the opportunity to work with manatees and develop and then do necropsies and provide medical care. And they still have a very vigorous program at I think Inter-American University now where they rehab uh, manatees. So I thought it was wonderful. It was a great opportunity. If This was the first introduction I had to working with marine mammals to have the opportunity to work with manatees. So, yeah, as you said, there was a real change of uh, perception in the population towards maybe being a bit ignorant about them to towards really wanting to protect them and helping their survival. Oh, yes. Tremendously. It was beautiful to see. And, you know, I think what I really like about just the whole concept of, of the WDA and encouraging other veterinarians to put posters that species that they may not work with. You know, if you're working in a medical office, we encourage all the students at Mississippi State to put a poster of an endangered species or an, an oceanic species in their office because it triggers conversation, it triggers intelligent communication about what's happening with our oceans. And it lets the public know why what we do is so critically imp important aquatic medicine. Mm. From my work, I know that one of the main causes for manatees in Florida and also in Alabama and Mississippi to die from or to get sick from is cold stress during the cold winter month. I guess that, that's not a real problem for them in Puerto Rico. No, that's not a problem. Um, it's in the Caribbean. And, <laughs> and you know, they're, they're coastal species. So They're traveling around coastlines because they're herbivorous, they're eating seagrass, and they're looking for freshwater sources. So one of the problems is because they're so inland is that they get boat strikes quite a bit. Mm. Uh, and it can be, or jet skis. I've done several necropsies on boat strikes and jet ski strikes, as well as entanglements. What other threats are they facing in Puerto Rico? I think this is probably one of the biggest threats, if not the biggest threats to uh, manatees in general are human related. So whether it be HI or human interactions where they're shot or they are entangled or their boat strikes, all of those 
as in Florida, are serious, very serious threats. Thanks for being my guest on the show, Deb. It was really cool to talk to you and learn about your story. Oh, I loved it. And I'm so excited about participating in WDA in the future. And if you ever need me for anything else, please feel free to call me. Thanks for listening to the Wildlife Health Talks. We will be back with a new story in two weeks. Bye for now.